0: The year was 2016, the politician was Michael Gove, and the context was Brexit, and the quote, I think the people in this country have had enough of experts from organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. The year after, an author called Tom Nichols wrote a book called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. The idea of the book was to explore the dynamics and the causes of a rise in the virtue of ignorance. That sounds strange, doesn't it? The idea that the people above us, the people that say they've got all the answers, the authorities, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And whilst I might not have any expertise, I know what to do both the quote by Michael Gove and the book by Nichols highlight for us a dynamic that goes on inside all of us as we navigate life. And it's simply this question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Whose advice should I take? Who gets to tell me what to do? Can the people with authority be trusted? For example, should I trust the people who have set the speed limit for the roads that I drive on? I'm not looking at anybody in particular, but I know myself, I often doubt the wisdom of the people who set the speed limits. Or maybe another example is this. Are my parents right... When they say that I shouldn't do this, shouldn't be on that social media app, or I shouldn't have my phone after a certain time, will I obey them? Who is in charge? Can they be trusted? How should I respond? We're going to walk together through these verses that Barry's just read to us, part of Matthew's Gospel. We're looking at an account of the life of Jesus, week by week, seeing what the Bible tells us. And we're going to look together, if you're taking notes, if you've got the the handouts, three things, three points to to guide you through these, these three sections that we've read. An unanswered question, an unrequited call, and an unforeseen outcome. The service outline the sheets you might want to write down notes you might not but we do want to be invested in doing our best to respond to what God is saying to us so an unanswered question and we begin with Jesus entering the temple courts again last week as Ian was telling us he was in there in the temple courts and then leaving outside of Jerusalem and we find him teaching the people gathered there once again and he is once again accosted by the religious leaders and they come up to him and they say what gives you the right and who gives you the right if you've got your bible open first chapter 21 verse 23 by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority what are they talking about they're talking about the events, at least, of the, the previous, that we previously looked at. Jesus coming into the temple and turning over the, the tables. This riotous behaviour. And Jesus criticising the leaders of the temple. And Jesus having the, the stones to accept the praise of the children. That should be God's alone. What gives you the right, Jesus, they say. And they're laying out another trap for Jesus to walk into. Will he claim divine authority? Will he overstep the mark and cause either the crowds or the Roman authorities to turn against him or to stamp him out? And what we see is Jesus responding, not by answering their question, but instead by giving them a question in return. I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will answer you. And apparently, according to the scholars, this is a a fairly common sort of exchange that these leaders would gather and they, they would sort of spar with each other. And we'll see that Jesus never answers their question. But he takes them back to the events of a few years previous, involving a relative of Jesus, a man called John. Commonly known as John the Baptist. You can read Matthew's account of John the Baptist back in chapter 3 of his book. But here's a quick summary. John came preaching a message of what's called repentance of turning and he preached a message about the coming of a new kingdom a kingdom from out of this world not defined by geographical boundaries nor by comparative success but defined by the turning back of people to God and a turning back to God's revealed ways by those who would belong to the kingdom. And John was incredibly popular. The crowds massed to him. The people of Judea, the surrounding countryside of of Jerusalem. They all come out to the desert where John based himself. And the visible results were impressive. Because as people came to him, as they confessed their sin. That is, they spoke out loud the things that they knew that they had done wrong. And then they acted in a very visible, public way to show the the change. And so they were baptised in the River Jordan. And thousands of people came. And the question Jesus asked them is, you remember all of that? You remember how the whole nation was talking about this guy John the Baptist? He was a bit of an oddball. He wasn't in any way impressive, he dressed up weird, he was a bit of a loner, took himself away, didn't come into the the seat of power. All that, Jesus says, who's the authority behind that? Was it from heaven? I.e., was this something God was doing? Or was it something of human origin, i.e. did it come up out of John's own head? Was it God's or was it this one man? Was it heavenly or was it earthly? And as Jesus fires back this response to the religious leaders, they find themselves stuck. You see, they'd come for Jesus and now Jesus has turned the tables on them he literally turned the tables a few verses ago, and now he's metaphorically turning the tables on them because they didn't believe it was from God. They'd seen themselves as above all this stuff going off out in the desert, this stuff that the commoners had responded to. They'd, they thought they were better than that. They didn't believe it was from God. And how do we know? Because they would have listened. To John's message. They would have responded, repented themselves. They would have confessed their sins. They would have been baptised. But they dare not say that it was a human thing. An earthly thing. Because they were afraid of the people. So they're not going to acknowledge that it was a God thing. Because they didn't believe it. But they're not going to acknowledge that it's a, an earthly thing because they're afraid. They're afraid that the people will turn on them. They're afraid that their lives will be disrupted. The things that they like and love will be taken away. This first point, an unanswered question, reveals not an answer that they wanted but actually reveals the questioners themselves unwittingly the leaders unmask a bigger question because if the authority is legitimate then their response is illegitimate instead of wonder and anticipation at the words and the works that God was doing through John and then through Jesus They were worked up and angry. Instead of obedience, there was rejection. Instead of intrigue, there was insurrection against whatever authority was behind all of this. But this unanswered question doesn't just reveal them, it's relevant for us. Who gave you the authority? Who's in charge? because what Jesus calls his followers to is not easy it's not a call to continue as you are it's not a call that says guys you're great just keep doing what you're doing that's why the mission of the church is not to go out and find people who sort of fit with us anyway Go out and find people who do nice things in nice way with nice words. The call of the church is to go out and say, come and follow Jesus. Stop going where you are going and instead come and follow him. The call to follow Jesus doesn't fit with our or anybody's natural inclinations or desires. It doesn't require just a moral agreement, nor does it simply require an alignment of, of wishes. It requires something new a new heart, a new motive, ultimately, a new king. But if we are to ask this question, who's in charge? Or say to Jesus who gives you the right what gives you the right to ask this of me the first Sunday of our series we thought about marriage and divorce we thought about how the bar that Jesus sets for his followers is so much greater so much higher than than the ones that we would naturally set for ourselves and Maybe you're a person who is single and you say, Jesus, what gives you the right to deny me the opportunity to to love whoever I want to love? Or to be married to whoever I want to be married to? Or maybe you're married and you say, Jesus, what gives you the right to say that I need to, to love my spouse and to keep loving them and to not look for an easy way out? Jesus, what gives you the right But if we ask that question in a genuine manner, not in the way that these religious leaders asked it, we will find the most fulfilling answer. What gives you the right? To which Jesus will reply, I am the God who made you. I am the God who speaks to you. I am the God who came into this world for you. I am the God who laid down my life for you. I am the God who leads you and loves you. I am, Jesus will say, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the firstborn from among the dead. I am the God who forgives your sins, who redeems your life from the pit. I am God. I am your God's. That is the answer we will receive if we turn to Jesus and say, what gives you the right? And he will say, how long have you got? Remember where this is all taking place, in the outer courts of the temple. And as these religious leaders are asking this question, Jesus could turn round and say, this is the authority that I have. I am the God who has come to dwell with my people. You know the stories. You know how I saved my people out of slavery. You know how I brought them to this very land. You know how I dwelt with amongst them. And I gave them my temple so they might come and worship me, so that they might see that forgiveness is possible, that communion with God is a reality. But instead, we get no answer because the question is not genuine. Hold on to that thought. The goodness of the authority of Jesus. As we see where Jesus goes next. He proceeds to tell three parables, three stories to illustrate and to communicate his heart and his truth. We're going to look at the first two today and then Ewan's going to finish off next week with the the third one. So here's our, our second heading, an unrequited call. Jesus launches straight into a story. It's a straightforward story. There are two sons and one father. One son who says he will work in the vineyard but doesn't. And the other who says he won't work in the vineyard and then does. And Jesus asked the simple question, verse 31, which of the two did what his father wanted? The focus is on obedience here to the one in authority. The father has authority over his sons. It's a connected story to what we've just been thinking about. And I don't think it's hard for us to either get the point of this story, but also to imagine ourselves in it. Either... As one of the two inconsistent children, I'm sure all of us can in some way say, yes, I recognize that inconsistency in myself. I would guess we probably have more who would be like the, the first brother who says, yes, but does nothing. But you'll be able to tell me. Maybe you can empathize with the father who has inconsistent children who say one thing and do another. But Jesus asked the question, which one did what the father wanted? That's the, the, the sort of the money question. That's what it's all about. And they know it, don't they? We all know it. Which son is it? Is it the one whose words says yes but does nothing? Or the one who says no but then goes out and does it? Of course, it's the one who actually goes out and does what the father wanted. Works in the vineyard. And now then listen to what Jesus says to them afterwards. Let me read it again. As they correctly identify which one does the work, Jesus said to them, verse 31, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For Jesus sorry. Sh- for John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. There's a horrifying headline for these religious leaders. Those that they would deem to be much worse than them, to be much less than them, are ahead of them, are better off. That would have hit home like a sledgehammer. And then there's a history. Jesus recalls what happened with John the Baptist. They Talked about it a little bit and now he's telling them this story. He says John called you to repent. And you didn't. Your actions betrayed your hearts. You did not believe the one whom God had sent. We talked a little bit about John the Baptist earlier. What we didn't mention was how brutal he was in his assessment of the religious leaders let me read a little bit to you from matthew chapter 3 this is john the baptist when he saw many of the pharisees and sadducees the religious leaders coming to where he was baptizing he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath produce fruit in keeping with repentance And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John was utterly condemning of the religious leaders. Because they had all the right words and none of the right action. Just like that son who said, yes, dad. In a minute, dad, I'm on with it. And a minute goes by and five minutes goes by and 10 minutes and an hour and a day and a week and nothing. That's what these religious leaders we like, all the talk, but no walk. And Jesus says the reality is, is the people that you look down upon have shown you the way. They have turned. They have repented. And you haven't. And as Jesus speaks this story to the religious leaders, he says the problem is is that you've not responded as you ought to have done, for whatever reason. Jesus breaks this down into two groups, doesn't he? Those that have not turned, but also those that have And I think his primary target is to speak to those who say the right things and have none of the right action. And those that even saw the good fruit. Did you notice as we were reading through as Jesus says at the end of verse 32, having talked about this group of nobodies, worse than that, like the worst of society. As they have turned. He says you saw that. You saw the fruit of what John had come. You saw people. Who had outwardly. Obviously. Not lived how God wanted them to live. And you saw them. Confess it. Admit it. And turn from it. You saw the fruits and you did not repent, and you did not believe. Of course, the other group is those that did. Those who heard John's message and recognised their need, and recognised the offer of grace, that they could be given a standing and a life that they did not deserve. Elliot prayed about it earlier. This parable leaves us only with a, a non response and a non response to John the Baptist. But what if the one that John the Baptist? Was preparing the way for. The one that he was pointing to. The one of whom he said. Somebody else is coming greater than I. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. Or tie up his shoes. What if he comes? Will it make a difference? Will then. These religious leaders. Will, will then they turn? Will they respect Then the authority of God as he interacts with humanity. Well, let's cue up parable number two. And our final point, an unforeseen outcome. Another story, another authority figure, another vineyard to be worked. This is how God had described his own work amongst his people. Describing them as a vineyard, the religious leaders would have heard that. They would have, as Jesus tells this story, they would have gone, oh man, this is how God describes his work amongst his people. The landowner buys the land, sets up the whole project, and then he brings in workers, tenants, to man the vineyard. And if all goes to plan, they will do the work, and then they will send some of the, the proceeds to the to the owner, they will have a job and a life, they will benefit from the harvest. But at harvest time, the landowner sends his servants to collect his fruit. And something inside these tenants says, no. No. And so they mistreat some of the the servants. They beat them. They killed others. They stoned some others. And the landowner recognizes this and goes, "I'm, I'm sending more more servants, and they do the same again. And maybe the religious leaders would have heard this and gone, well, if this is God talking about his people, maybe God's talking about the prophets that he sent and the way they were mistreated. And it goes the second time exactly the same way as the first. And then finally, the landowner says, I'll send my son. They will respect my son. They will know who he is. They will see the likeness of the son of the landowner. Surely, you can almost hear it, surely they won't treat my son in this way. But the tenants see the opportunity to cement their occupation of the vineyard to seal their victory and so they choose to kill the son and we're told at the end of this section the chief priests and the pharisees heard Jesus' parables and they knew that he was talking about them this is what they are like the parable hits home They know that Jesus is condemning them for their lack of belief in the authority of God. They are saying, you do not have the right to tell us what to do. And they do not believe in the ones that he has sent. And we know it because their attitude and their behaviour does not change. It's funny because they know how this story should end. Verse 40, Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. They know how this story should go. And they self-condemn. They self-condemn. And yet they can't see it. They're blind to it. They're blind to the reality of who this son of the landowner is. This one sent from heaven. This one sent to them. How do they answer the question about how this story ends? Maybe they'd have said, well, it could go like this they kill the son but he's not really from the landowner the landowner doesn't really care and these tenants get to keep their control and they get to keep the spoils they keep all the fruit for themselves or maybe they say well option two the landowner's son is from God and he will punish them for their rejection, for their desertion, for their treasonous behaviour. But they're blind, aren't they? They cannot see that it's them. And so they don't really see it panning out in option two. In reality, they see it panning out in option one. We continue as we are, we do what we want, and it'll work out best for us. They do not foresee a scenario where the son is rejected and yet he becomes the glorious keystone of the marvellous work of God. You see, as they self-condemn in verse 41, verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Of course they have. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who know the Old Testament back to front, front to back. They know it so well. Have you never read? This is where Jesus really brings it home to them. Have you never read Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is the song that has been playing in the background of this whole chapter. Chapter. It's quoted as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, and the crowds are singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's been playing along. When we heard the children singing in the temple and, and saying these things to Jesus, you can almost hear them continuing to repeat the lyrics. The song that Saint tells about a conquering king who comes through difficulties to rule and to reign, who conquers through rejection and they don't understand that through their rejection of Jesus they are playing a role in his glorious rise to power, to glory, to the eternal kingship that will last through all of the ages. Have you never read, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that God will take what humans reject and he will use it for his purposes, for the good of his people? The stone the builders have rejected, you can imagine it, can't you? A building site. And they're building a, a house. And they are taking the stones that have been delivered. And they look at one and think, no, this, this won't do. And they just chuck it on the pile. They just go, that's, that's not it. That stone has become the cornerstone. The most important stone in the entire building and they've rejected it because they don't like the way it looks and they don't like the way that that stone shows them up or shows the lack of need for them they knew he was talking about them there's some serious resurrection foreshadowing going on as Jesus quotes psalm 118 Because that's exactly how God will bring in this great, glorious kingdom. The one that the religious leaders reject. The one that they will have killed at the hands of the Romans. Will rise three days later to never die again and to bring other people through death into eternal life. Into this kingdom that John the Baptist was talking about all the way in chapter 3. This, this kingdom that people enter through turning from where they were going and turning and believing in the one whom God has sent. They don't enter it through their goodness. They don't enter it because they are in any way impressive. In fact, the very people we see entering it are weak and sinful and they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of those who look outward impressive, ahead of those who say all the right things. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed there is a seriousness about what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders he warns them and they warn themselves about the inevitable response of heaven and the king of heaven against those who reject him those wretches will be brought to a wretched end But there is another group who acknowledge their wretchedness and turn to Jesus. And they will produce a fruit. They will rejoice in the authority of their master. They will give him what he is owed, they will share in the harvest. They will turn from their own efforts. They will turn from their own sin. They will turn from their own dependence. They will turn from their own glory. And they will believe in the one God has sent. And as they believe in him, they will find life. They will walk into the kingdom. Two peoples, two endings. And the question is, where does Jesus' authority come from? What right does Jesus have to say this to us? Maybe you're sat here thinking, well, that's outrageous. How can Ben say that? I thought this was a, a nicer church than that. But Jesus is warning us here. That the inevitable response to rejecting the one God has sent is punishment, is destruction, is what the Bible will call hell. But Jesus is unbelievably gracious. Even to those who were listening on, had any of them said, you're right. I'll turn away from this life that I've been living. I will turn and trust in Jesus. If any of them would have joined in the children singing praise to Jesus. If any of them would have worshipped him as king. They would have been brought in. They would have been given roles and responsibilities and privileges and rights of the new kingdom. And it's true for us today. This chapter, these stories is about a lack of repentance. But it's there to call us to repent. To turn to Jesus. To trust in the one who was rejected so that we might be accepted. Jesus is the great stumbling block. He is the one, anyone on whom this stone falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Some, anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. You see, Jesus won't leave us unaffected, even this afternoon. He calls for a response. This cornerstone will either produce a fruitful life of worship in you, or He will be your demise. Will you submit to the loving, truthful authority of the king? To do so will require honesty. To be like the son who initially does reject the father's call to come and work in the vineyard. And to say, yeah, I did reject that, but now I'm coming. To do so will require humility. To recognise that we are not in charge of our own futures or even our own presence. To recognise and to admit that we do not know what is best. To do so will require faith. To believe that Jesus can be trusted with my life. To believe that the commands of Jesus are better for me. And I know that what is good for myself that Jesus can be trusted with my life and my joy today and tomorrow and the question that Jesus asks of us is will you come will you turn will you believe in me